Oh, God damn it, it was on mute. Right. On a week where Big Ben stops bonging, I mean, uh, and the sun stops, well, actually, it continues shining. We just believe it doesn't shine for a little while. Uh, we do the front three. It's a big weekend in football. Uh, maybe once in a lifetime but then I've seen two eclipses already so uh, anyway Nico join me, joins me to speak about the weekend's action how are you doing Nico we need to get you off quick because you need to go and see the the eclipse I'm not that bothered about it you're really not that bothered I mean you've, you you don't think this, there's some sort of formational thing that you can do here uh, yeah, maybe the the sun will maybe overlap a little bit, or, or the moon will overlap in a way that the, the you know there's goal scoring opportunities. But uh, I'm not that bothered about it. What's the XM on this one, Nico? Like we the expected moon? Yeah, is that is that the metric you're gonna use? <laughs> I don't know. I think it's one whole moon that we're gonna approach on. Wow, Actually, I mean that I must be that. So the chances of moon are high. Yeah, I would say they're pretty high. In this position, yes. Um, and then, of course, we've got uh, Dave O'Brien. Dave, it's great to have you. Cheers. Thank you. Um, I'm per- personally would thinking, I think it's a 0.96 X moon. Yeah. Um, from what yeah, I've okay, so your, your model, your model's coming out with a 9.6? Mm, yeah, like yeah. XG model. Yeah, I got, I got a little bit over off. one. I just got over one on mine. Well, I, well, you, just over one? Just over yeah, one? Just How do you get one. more than one goal? Well, see, we, we're, we're, my model predicts with the stellar aberration that we're actually going to get uh, 0.1 of another moon within ah, the eclipse. I understand. Right. Wow. Wow. Okay. Uh, I've, that's I, took, I took freshman astronomy. Um, as did we all, really, Nico. Um, I mean, Dave definitely mooned a lot of people in high school. Um, anyway, <laughs> there is, there's plenty to come up on today's podcast. We've already, already wasted enough of your time by talking about solar eclipses and moons. Um, but... Uh, Dave, I quite enjoyed your explanation of the XG the other day. In England, it's really become quite the discussion topic because Optra have started using it in their analysis. Um, and a few other people have started to push it, the BBC. Um, it's really another product now. But why don't people uh, say the expected goals model? They talk about expected goals as if there is only one model on all of these shows. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point, actually, that they they are painting it as this ultimate model and you know there is definitely work that could be done on it and again it's it's one of these things where i feel that we do throw stats down people's throats you know i especially do that myself you know, tackle your stats, name is literally stats. Statman dave <laughs> <laughs> and all that type of thing but i think the thing with xg is it is a model and kind of like they're saying it like it's a goal like it's the stat like it's you know i don't know if the interpretation is right in the media yet like if it's uh, like it's a definitive goes. almost yeah like it's a bit definitive and it's you know it's again it's a metric to measure the quality of the chances that you're creating so should go back to that, and um, that should be part of the analysis. But, you know, hey, I'm not on BBC Match of the Day yet. Yet. Uh, let's wait till he gets to Media City. Although Match of the Day, I think, is actually filmed in London. Um, oh. I think. I don't know that, though. That might not be the case. might actually be that it's in Manchester. I'm probably wrong. I'm sure Stephen Housen will tell us. Anyway, let's get on to the first game of the weekend, where the XG was very much on the charts, Nico, uh, as... Chelsea headed to Wembley to face Spurs in their first away home game of the season. Um, and ultimately, it was Marcus Alonso who was the defining factor, but why? Um, in terms of why, I think, you know, he had a very 
very lucky, if I can use that word, um, game, you know, finishing some very low chances. But I think to speak to the game overall, I, I think for me, Spurs kind of deserved the draw on this one. Neither team did superbly well to create uh, a great chances, and you can see that through a metric uh, like expected goals. But for me, I think Tottenham what Pochettino failed to do and what I think he continues to fail to do in some of these bigger games is that he has a a set idea that he goes into the game with and he kind of sticks to his guns. And if you look at the teams that had success against Chelsea last season, specifically Tottenham, the things that they did well were attacking those three central defenders of of Chelsea's 3-4-3 or 3-5-2 system, um, you know, attacking them aerially. And that's what I kind of wanted him to do with especially someone like Kyrian Trippier who apparently his you know crossing ability at least aerially is supposedly superior to the to the guy that left for Manchester City which is Kyle Walker so I think in the beginning of the game they were trying to do that but as the game sort of wore on it was Antonio Conte's ability and sort of intelligent usage of David Luiz as maybe even a little bit farther forward in front of those defenders uh, to sweep up things as Tottenham were trying to penetrate a little bit more centrally and I would have liked to see Pochettino go back to the original formula which was attacking those center backs aerially aerially because the use of David Luiz in in that sort of free defensive role is what allowed for you know Spurs to create almost no chances in in you know as they as the game went on and I think that's really what allowed Conte's team to be successful is that they're, they're really good at counterattacking and they, they had a really uh, lucky day in, in terms of finishing with uh, with Marcus Alonso being at the center of that. Well, Dave, what was interesting was how sort of uh, rough and bitty at times the game was. Um, you know, there's definitely elements of uh, both sides trying to break things up, trying to get in the other's face. Do you think that served one team more than the other? Because it definitely seems as if uh, Chelsea are more finding their feet and so disrupting someone else's rhythm and, you know, playing ultimately slightly more defensively is certainly going to, I mean, from the analysis side, at least on paper, serve them better. Yeah, I think they, they needed to bring, you know, a bit of bit of gusto and a bit of aggression to the game to kind of catch Spurs out a little bit. Chelsea won the Premier League last season playing a defensive style of football, counter-attacking style of football, you know, not a bad thing. It was very effective. But again, it was, you know, bringing... We, we all saw Spurs melt down two seasons ago against Chelsea where they just all lost their heads, you know, dire... Um, and, and that lot sort of getting sent off. So I think it's one of these things where they tried to engage him in a similar game. I think fielding David Luiz, like Nico said, was a masterstroke from Conte. You know, switching away from the 3-4-3 and playing a 3-5-2, allowing Conte and Bakayoko to both play their natural roles of pressing, of, of winning tackles and so forth. Of course, Conte, um, you know, it's classic going to win your tackles in that type of game. But David Luiz as well uh, won five tackles the same amount as Conte. So it's kind of that thing where you threw another worker in there, you threw another physical guy in there. And arguably... You know, like Nico sort of mentioned, and what I what we spoke about on the kickoff is sometimes Spurs need to go direct. You know, it's not a bad thing for Pochettino to say, right, let's go direct. Let's, you know, second half, let's throw Jansen on a lot earlier and let's just hit our target then. Let's hit the guys and play off them because I feel that's what, you know, Spurs might need to do at Wembley because, you know, it was a small, small nuances like Wembley, right? The pitch is quite slow. Like, it's a slow pitch. If you watch passes go across, like, say, Old Trafford, you know, from like uh, centre half to, to say, let's say left back or something, it, it, it goes quite quick. United walk on their pitch. With Wembley, the grass looks a bit, I think it must be made of a different composite of plastic and, and real grass, but I think it's a bit slower. So it kills Spurs' short passing game that's supposed to be quick tempo. So arguably going long to Harry Kane and then playing that high tempo in the final third could be a method for Spurs to, you know, push on at Wembley. Again, Kieran Trippier thought he was absolutely useless. 
I think he's, you know, he's a slightly one-dimensional footballer. Gets the final third and he crosses when he's not, you know, when he's not hitting the right crosses. That's it. You know, he's caught out of position for that early Morata chance, and kind of his game just kept on going that way. And it's going to be a bit of a problem if Pochettino he, a doesn't sign anyone to play there, or um, you know, b maybe not use Musa um, Zoko there, or even thrown in Davison Sanchez. He's a wonderful footballer and could play wing-back, really, um, and that may be why they bought him. So it could be a real good evolution of the Colombian. So it's going to be interesting for Chino because he's got work to do. Um, and I don't think they will be as competitive as they were last season. I think also, if I can just speak to another point, you know, this is one of those games where Antonio Conte didn't just do things correct tactically, which he did a lot of things, I think, in direct response to what Pochettino was going to come out with. But he he managed the game state like Mourinho does so well. Um, he, he managed the game state to, to sort of have Tottenham play into his hands, like like Dave and I have touched on. It, it, all of these things that he he used, the the role of, uh, of um, N'Golo Conte and Bakayoko, using their, you know, athleticism and pressing. David Luiz in that free defensive role response to the strengths that Tottenham were going to bring to the table. Those deep crosses from Christian Eriksen, he, was, he wasn't able to do that very very much during the game because he didn't have much space because of the pressing of Bakayoko and Kante. Kieran Trippier the same. Those late runs that we associate Deli Alley with, those were shut down by David Luiz and, and other players in that midfield. So I think Pochettino in some of these games and the Liverpool game last year kind of brings back the, the, a similar point is that he he's able to be sort of influenced into playing how the opposition wants him to play. And I think that's something that he needs to work on. Mourinho does it exceptionally well where he gets the opposition to play how he wants them to play so that he can counterattack upon them and then you know play his style of football. If if Pochettino is to excel with this Spurs team, which I think if he was at a different side with different players, he could do different things. But if he's to excel with this Spurs team, I think he's going to have to do that a little bit better. I think he's going to have to make people play in a certain way. It's also, I mean, this really highlights a lot of um, maybe some of the issues with um, the, the Spurs setup at the moment. Not that there are incredible issues with it. Uh, first of all, it's nothing to do with Googling players, but it is partly to do with uh, the, the Wembley... Uh, syndrome. Uh, Tottenham have lost seven of their last nine matches at Wembley, only winning one and drawing one. And they lost each of their last four games against Chelsea there. I mean, it, there is, there's got to be some sort of a mental block. I don't want to speak too much to that, but there does, there, there does have to be some sort of factor there. Uh, something maybe you can't quantify, but fairly fascinatingly, maybe you can. Um, in the end, though... I think- Go on, Nika. Just, just on that quickly, quite a tiny little point on that. I think in terms of like the game management could be quite interesting for Spurs. You know, if they do go a goal down, it might be like, oh, not this again. And if they keep on losing, then, you know, it potentially will become something. So just a little bit on the psychology of the situation. Ain't that right, Nico? Yeah, totally. <laughs> it is right, Nico. Yeah. Oh, don't be wrong. Uh, of course, uh, there was a, another game on Sunday. We should probably just cover that while we're here as well. Um, by the way, uh, are either of those teams capable of tit- uh, title challenges? I think um, no. You don't think so? I haven't got them. No, I, I sort of, sort of, you know, preseason didn't really impress me, so I'm going to say no. I think uh, I'm going to have to agree with Dave there, but I think in terms, just to speak to it a little bit, I think Spurs people talking about how they need to go and win things and they need to progress if they want to keep certain players. I think in, in the grand scheme of things, them staying where they are now, sort of keeping within the top four, that would be a success for them considering the the financial circumstances they're under. But that's just my opinion. 
certainly so. Um, I mean, yeah, that, that is partly a win, but then a title win definitely does look a little better. Um, although if everyone else goes bankrupt in the end, uh, ultimately history will remember you as a good saver. Um, let's go to the other game on Sunday, which of course was Huddersfield hosting their first home game in the Premier League. Uh, and not the top division, but the Premier League uh, ever uh, against Newcastle and Rafa Benitez. Dave, we watched this one live on the kickoff on True Geordie's channel and, of course, Facebook. Um, the, the man who was the star of the game, Aaron Moy, you know, uh, we, we were talking about how basically not only um, is he looking great at this point in the season, but also how the Huddersfield team and system benefits that and how we will expect that to sort of level out a little bit. Yeah, I think so. I think that what was quite impressive about Huddersfield was how they kind of dictate the game against Newcastle. They really had, you know, they were playing out the back, they were splitting their centre-halves, the defensive midfielder was coming in, which again opened up space for Moy to completely dictate the play. It was absolutely fantastic. It was a really good display, um, you know, from watching uh, Match of the Day the week before of Huddersfield and then watching him live. You know, you really get a, a different aspect that he, he just is absolutely everywhere. He's just one of these central midfielders that will pull left or pull right will you know move to number 10 will drop deep it's like difficult to play against him because he's so fluid in his movement and i think like manchester city potentially should have they kept him you know maybe they they could have added him in their first sort of first team squad because he's got the ability on the ball and he just looks like a real a real top player that you know you, you can kind of see players in central midfield when they're good they, they do certain things right. They make the right decisions. The touch is always on point. And I think that's what Moy's got. And we kind of saw, you know, going back to the kickoff, we were talking about um, Moy and then he basically, well, I was saying something like, you know, if they continually let him dictate the play or if they don't close him down enough, well enough in the, the second half, they're going to cause a tr problem. That was when he, just before he popped a one-two with, um, uh, what's he called, Kachunga? Yeah. And then he scored a goal. And it was one of these things where it was blatantly obvious that, um, you know, that Hayden and Moreno need to be really sharp on their movement in that second half to track him, to go with him, to shut him down. It was just, I don't know, it just seemed a bit easy for him, too easy. And maybe also part of that, of course, Nico, is the fact that he, he has been playing against a couple of people who aren't uh, maybe of the very, very, very top quality. Yeah, I think the, the, the case for Aaron Moy, you know, maybe staying at Manchester City is, is a decent one considering, you know, we need central midfielders and an extra one certainly wouldn't be unwelcome. But, you know, perhaps maybe you have to look at the player and his own motivations and wanting to play first team football and him having that opportunity at Huddersfield is a, is a good one. But I think to speak to Huddersfield specifically, the reason and there's a lot of speculation about expected goals, especially it's role in mainstream media now is you know the understanding of how we use it and really the 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 purpose and use of expected goals is that it is the best predictor of future success or future performance um, than goals it's way better than goals at predicting whether a team will be good in the future or not and for the first two games of the Premier League season Huddersfield have been incredibly lucky in converting their chances especially against Crystal Palace and the same as in this game it's it's about a 0.3 to a 1.0 uh, according to uh, a model that 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 I go by so I think we we're seeing a little bit of, of early success for David Wagner um, but I don't think that will continue I think I think Huddersfield will fall so right now they can they can be happy with their six points but I, I don't think it will continue that way wow uh, you don't sound bitter at all right now you can be happy with your six points um, but it won't last. You well, losers. Newcastle did well in this game. You know, they, they they created quite a few chances, and I think that speaks to Rafa Benitez. It's it's. I think he'll have a successful season in the Premier League, and and two okay. games right now isn't enough to judge it. So, 
completely disagree. I thought Newcastle were atrocious, especially in central midfield. And I don't think they got enough. To I'm not talking about their style the of play. I'm talking about the pure creation of, of okay the nico morales expected goals model <laughs> <laughs> it's not my expected goals model yeah, yeah no, I, that, I just think that, that they lack quality i think they lack quality in the center yeah, at number 10 at number six and number eight and without that in the premier league you're gonna struggle you really are gonna struggle i don't think they're good enough at the back as well Mankio is dodgy as anything clark and, and the shells yeah you know they're all right, but are they good enough to be like we're, we're the whole team is resting on you guys? Yes, the structure from Rafa was good four four one one, but it didn't change anything. You know, something that we spoke about again um, with with Brian, it, they just didn't change anything. They didn't change their shape. They didn't change how they were playing. They just switched players in and out. And again, that ain't going to cut it at the moment for Rafa Benitez. It needs to be a lot more creative than that. Uh, Newcastle have lost their first two Premier League games in this campaign. That's the first time since 1999, 2000. Um, quite a while, obviously, uh, since that. But then they've dropped in and out of the league since. Um, they've now gone 12 away games without a win in the Premier League, losing 10 of them. Though they did have a very bad season when that was the case. Um, so let's see. I mean, you know, it doesn't seem like they've had the best start back in the Premier League. When I say seem, they literally haven't had the best start since returning to the Premier League. Um, Nico, while we have you, uh, let's talk a little about uh, Stoke City winning 1-0 against Arsenal, the 5.30 kickoff on Saturday. Um, and the lone E, the man who shows ambition, Hesse, getting the win for Stoke, who also then sat and soaked up Arsenal. Yeah, it was a good performance by Stoke. I think they did a lot of things that maybe traditionally would unsettle the likes of Arsenal. And specifically speaking to Hesse, he, you know, he was... Uh, he was Basically, Marco Asensio before Marco Asensio was himself. Um, he was that breakout player in the season that they had La Decima, and he was sort of supported by all the Real Madrid players. He was incredibly quick, and then he went uh, and had an ACL tear, and he's still incredibly quick, you know, uh, really quick acceleration, uh, beating people. And it, it's crazy to think how, how you know, fast he would be and, and how you know, good he would be physically if he hadn't torn his ACL. It's almost as if he never did. But uh, certainly some some decent stuff from Marquise here being direct. Uh, but also, it's nice to see the evolution of the Premier League come along in the sense that there were some pressing uh, dynamics from, from Stoke here and, and things that maybe you would normally see from teams in Europe. And, and you, you see that from a team uh, like Stoke that has, yes, has a lot of Champions League winners and has a lot of players that have played in some really top quality teams. But to have the entire team sort of take on those things is is nice to see. Yep, certainly pretty fascinating uh, stuff going on there against Arsenal. Dave, uh, Arsenal Wenger already saying there's no problems at Arsenal and the negativity hasn't returned. Um, sure. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Let's just play Monreal as a centre, centre back in the back three. Dave, Good do you idea, not like Wenger. it? Do you have, do you have a just, bloody problem with that, mate? I've got, a, I've got a bit of a problem with that, Lawrence. I think playing one fullback in a back three is fine. One fullback in a back three, like Cesar Spilicueta, is perfect. But playing two, and one of them who has never really played as a centre back in his career, Monreal, yeah, you know, it's just a bit weird. And I'd rather see someone, you know, someone else play in that position, even if it is, you know, one of the younger lads, someone that is actually a centre half, because we're seeing that space. The space is huge between, you know, between Monreal and Mustafi. Um, it was instead of Rob Holding. Like that space is massive. Like it's so easy to be like, right, let's let's attack this area, and that's what Hesse did. You know, how many chances did Hesse had? Like two, two chances and took one of them. And it's just one of these things where it's kind of like. It's frustrating because I like this ta this tactical setup that Arsenal got, but now it just seems like the personnel is wrong. 
It's just, I just don't know what to... Wenger is just frustrating me again. Is it the personnel or the spacing, Dave? I think it's the personnel because I don't think the, the spacing is that much of an issue. I just think they... Because Monreal is is naturally a left back, he he feels a bit uncomfortable playing as a, in the centre, mm-hmm. and it's just it just feels for me like that there's it's the personnel that aren't. Yes, Wenger doesn't isn't going to drill down and you know they're not going to be like Nagelsmann's team that's only they know exactly where to go. Wenger, it's going to be a little bit more lacy fair. All that's what it appears to be on the pitch. So it is the personnel that have to make a few more decisions in a back three, and again maybe that's just not the thing. The system isn't for Arsene Wenger as we we thought it was. It just. It's just a bit weird. Again, Granit Xhaka, I've got to blame him as well for jumping out of the system at the wrong time a few times in the game, you know, catching himself out at, at defensive midfield and really exposing the back three that was so shaky. So it's, it's just why it's, it's, it's Arsenal. That's what it is. It's just blaming Arsenal. Bloody hell. Uh, it's, it, it, there's got to be some solutions, though. I mean, come on, guys. Uh, it can only get better for Arsenal at this point. You know... Surely they would have been able to score against this back three, but no. Uh, it can only get better, and there are little shafts of light in there, Dave. Yeah, I think there's some positivity around, obviously, um, you know, the likes of Lacazette, who look very, very good. I just think he's just got to get the blend right of the players. It's, it just seems a bit strange, and there's definitely light at the end of the tunnel for Arsenal. Um, it's going to be the Europa League, and, you know, I say it now, and people laugh and be like, oh, no, Arsenal are going to do a lot better this season. But I honestly think they need to be really thinking about pushing for the Europa League to get back into Europe because after these first two games, they've been shambolic at the back. Absolutely shambolic. And it's it's just a weird one when potentially you've got someone like Per Mertesacker on the bench that could have come in and been that middle centre-back and done well. And he's gone for Muriel. Whether it is an injury or whatever, coming back or form, you would have tried to rush Per Mertesacker. You would have tried to potentially give him injections or whatever to try and get him through uh, the slight injury he may have. Or maybe it's just a selection thing. It's just a bit it's a bit off. And Hector Bellerin as a left wing back, that's mental. Hector Bellerin is one of the most right-sided players I've ever seen. You want to watch one of the... The, the tackle that I showed you, Lawrence, on, on Sunday that was literally... So it was like left, left back slot. And the tackle is on with his left foot. And he goes with his right. Well, it's, and it's one of the things that yeah, you said. Yeah. Well, yeah. Go on, because what I said, I thought it was quite illuminating the answer you gave. Yeah, it was something you know. You were saying like technically, people expect Bellerin to be a very technically good footballer, and I was like, yes, that's you know, that's completely correct. I I fully agree with that. I think the problem that the British press ha- press have um, on this analysis is that technique isn't just passing. Technique isn't just first touch. It's one of the things that I've read in Jürgen, uh, Jürgen, <laughs> Johan Cruyff's autobiography um, that I read over my little holiday in Croatia. One of the things he was saying, look, technique isn't just that. Technique is how to jump. Technique is how to tackle with the correct foot. Technique is being comfortable at tackling with your left foot and tackling with your right foot. And there's a massive hole in Bellerin's um, you know, footballing personnel or body that he can't tackle with his left foot. And you see it, it's just mental. He goes with his right foot, he gets beaten and Stoke have a chance on goal. And it's just like, that is just a base, that is like a fundamental thing in football that you should be able to do as a professional player. Tackle with both your feet. And it's, it's crazy. And again, Oxley chamberlain who's looked all right at left wing back, because he's a little bit more two-footed than Bellerin, is now playing on the right. Just there's so many personnel, like, selection things inside this formation that I'm just like... What are you doing? Oh, my God. Look at that, you know, man. Oh, my God. Like, for, like, another one. Danny Welbeck is an inside left forward. What? Dave, that's a, that's a, a classic Danny Welbeck position, Dave. You're a Wobie. A Wobie's I, I, a think, I think that's actually quite, quite good, though. I, I love Welbeck and inside left. What's wrong with you, Dave? Absolute. You two are jokers. 
Well, it certainly works for me, Dave. If I want Liverpool to get top four, I think I can keep it. I'd, I'd, ra- <laughs> <laughs> I'd rather Ramsey there. That'll be quite nice. But you know, that's me thinking, not Arsenal. Well, that's why you're probably going to win the Champions League one day, Dave. Hopefully. Hopefully. He does Hopefully one bloody right. FA coaching course, thinks he can tell everyone else how to play their side. <laughs> uh, anyway, let's move away and talk about someone who recently completed their FA coaching course, but in another country and then came over and took all of our jobs. It was Marco Silva. He moved to just outside London because, of course, most foreigners, Nico, can't afford to live in London and they just commute in to do the work. Um, he, he got a good win away at Bournemouth. Um, and, of course, got one over on the English, which is good for bloody Brexiteers. Yeah, I think, um, you know, like you've illuminated a couple times and, and he's maybe foreign. had expectations. <laughs> yeah, he's definitely foreign, but yeah. also... Um, he's not he, English, I can confirm that. He, he tans, <laughs> for a start. He's he's not English, that's for sure. He, t- he tans I think, well, uh, maybe. Maybe that, that also comes across in his style of play. I, I like some of the things that, that Marco Silva is doing. Maybe it's a little bit more defensively oriented. And as I've, as, as I've spoken about in the past, I think that's part of part of the job, really, is, is coming in and identifying the style of play that you need to be successful in the league that you've been hired within. And employing a defensive style in the Premier League is certainly... I think is something that will help you. So Marco Silva is doing that well at, at Watford, and I think he also has the players to do so. Uh, Nathaniel Chalaba, I think, is going to do incredibly well under him, as well as uh, Etienne Capu, um, who also did well under the under the last manager at, at Watford. So impressed so far with uh, with some of the things that he's doing at Watford, and I think he'll continue to do good things. Obviously, it's quite different to Matsari, isn't it, Dave? Um, the last manager, of course, at Watford, who. Um... Uh, cultivated a different sort of um, culture at the club. Uh, and I think part of the reason they probably got in uh, Silver is because they want to, uh, you know, first of all, I think he sees an opportunity in the short term to do something good for a team. And I think they also see a great opportunity for them um, to have another one of these stopgap managers. Um, you know, it wouldn't be the, the great thing for either side is that because now managers expect to go there for one season, everyone sort of knows what they're getting into. Um and so it's not, it's not, it doesn't seem like the worst deal. I know he's probably not building for just one season. That would be almost suicidal in, in any game. But, you know, there is that sort of expectation now. So it's almost removing the the worry around the club of Watford because, oh, you know, it, it, everything seems quite short-term. And if everything's short-term, it means you can change it very quickly. I think it's one of these things where I don't think this is short-term anymore. I think Marco Silva, Watford appointing Marco Silva shows that they are gearing for a bit of a charge with one manager. You know, you think the signings that they've the money that they've spent to bring in, you know, the likes of Richard Lisson and Will Hughes and obviously Andre Gray. I think this is the one where they've sim- they've they've slipped onto a similar thing that they had at Udinese where they kinda of got a really good run with one manager with a top goal scorer and everything everything just worked out for them. I think that, you know, Kike Sanchez Flores was the Spanish element, then they had the Italian element last season, and now you've got a guy that there's no elements, he just blends it all together. And I think that's the brilliance of Marco Silva. Think about what he did with those players last season when he moved to Hull, and he signed like 11 players in January, and, and within a week or two, they were playing his style of football. And I think that's an incredible thing, tactically so diverse, can you know play a number of different styles at a number of different times. So Marco Silva's just going to be, again, he's going to massively outperform what people think, and Watford as I sort of pointed out, they're going to be one of the surprise packages of this season because they've just got the right players in, the players that need to sort of prove themselves. They've got the right manager in and they've got a board that hopefully will take a little bit of Udinese 
um, type management where they took a bit of a standoff and they just recruited recruited well and they grew a club to a from a mid table bottom mid table Italian team to a Champions League Italian team. That could be Watford. Bit of an issue um, maybe for Bournemouth, Dave. I mean, they certainly have some good personnel there. Um, and you know, we uh, looking at the substitutions back on paper after watching the highlights of the game on um, Saturday night. Certainly. They, you know, they they're not a terrible team. They're, I don't th- I don't feel like they're far away, but at the same time, it, you've got this sort of. I don't know this is not quite their feeling about the club. I think it's it's like last season. So last season, I remember, I remember Slate and Eddie Howe being like Eddie Howe, second season syndrome. He's not signed the right players again. It appears that he's not signed the right players. He's not sound. He's still not got a dominating central midfielder. But what he does do is play multiple central midfielders in his midfield, whether it's four or three. And if you remember last season, they had a slow start and then they got in, they grew into the campaign. I think we'll kind of see this, a similar thing where I don't want to jump on and slate them because I don't think, because I think Eddie Howe will get it right again. You know, I don't want to get caught out to the same, you know, analysis hole that I went last season that was a bit naive of myself. You know, I want to grow with these guys. I want to grow with you guys. So I think with Bournemouth, I wouldn't worry. I think that they'll find their rhythm and they'll, you know, start beating teams again. But it, again, it'll be a slow start from Eddie Howe. And if he wants to potentially go to a massive club like a Liverpool, Man United, Chelsea... Um, or City, this is something that he's going to have to eradicate in his game. Is this sort of slow start it needs to be straight away from you know from August, banging the goals in, banging you know performances in, and we're not seeing that again. Uh, again, the Jermaine Defoe signing still perplexes me, but you know Eddie Howe made it for a reason, and we'll hopefully see that in the coming month. I think also just to speak to Eddie Howe a little bit, I think he, he a lot of people have spoken about how they admire his style of football and and everything that he's done been and been able to do with Bournemouth. Um, and maybe his style of play being a little bit idealistic for the level of talent that he has at you know at his disposal, and, and that sort of coincided with the match I was watching this weekend uh, in Liga with um, Marcelo Bielsa's Lille team. I think he isn't been he hasn't been given and he hasn't been hired into a situation where the talent is exceptional, um, and maybe the idealistic style of football doesn't entirely match up. But given the circumstances, if Bielsa was hired or Eddie Howe was hired into a club that had players of a different caliber, players that were capable of different things, players that were capable of ex- executing the nuances of his system that are a little bit ahead of the players that he has now, we'd see different results. But then again, that's that's like I said before, that's part of the job is realizing and, and, and accounting for what you have and then adjusting your style of play towards that. And maybe... You know, they're, they're falling short a little bit of their jobs if they're not able to do that. Glad to see that neither of you disappeared up an A-hole there. Analysis hole, sorry. Um, anyway, uh, Leicester got their first uh, win of the season after being narrowly beaten just the week before, Dave. It must have felt quite gratifying, though it was against Brighton and Hove Albion. Um, and that's not, a, that's not a slight on Brighton. Uh, a change, though, and a, and a slight shift in tactics this week with uh, Jamie Vardy playing slightly more centrally. Um, and maybe them not pummeling this Brighton team in the same way as they tried to aggressively attack Arsenal. Yeah, I think it was a slightly different performance. Again, you know, the the game was was slightly different. Again, Leicester City did play the counter-attacking style. You know, it's what we've expected from them. You know, since the days of them winning the Premier League, we've got the likes of Ogazaki um, and Vardy back up top together. But yeah, Vardy wasn't, you know, didn't have that massive exploit like the Arsenal game in between the centre-centre-back and the right-centre-back. You know, the same narrative that we're always talking about. Quite like Ndidi. Ndidi impresses me as a as a central midfielder in the Premier League. He's got that sort of combative nature um, and aggression. And, you know, if Ndidi was signed by, by Bournemouth, let's say, for example would be excellent for Eddie Howe. But I think, you know, you've got to look at, at Riyad Mahrez, who 
yeah, he's he's in a weird space where Roma are in and out for him. They've put bids in and they've taken it away, you know, and Monchi's not going to get ripped off. And that's what Leicester City wants to do is they want to rip off whoever's going to buy Riyad Mahrez. But, he's, you know, his corner was, was good. It was on point for the, the second goal. And, of course, the first goal was a result of a, a cut-in and shot, a classic Mahrez move. So they can get Mahrez back in, in the swing of things. I think they, they'll they'll do OK. Uh, but, again, if Mahrez goes, what happens then? Again, it's this... This whole problem that, yeah, Damari Gray may come in and Damari Gray will have to be the saviour for them. But if Mahrez really does leave this window and they've, you know, when who are Leicester going to sign as a replacement? It's the same thing with Coutinho. It's the same sort of problem. If Leicester lose Jamie, uh, Jamie Mahrez, Riyad Mahrez, what Mahrez. are they going to do? They've got, they've got um, you know, Harry Maguire's been been quite impressive in terms of an attacking sense. Already got a goal and assist from centre-half. Um, you know, scored against uh, Brighton from the corner. So it's, it's going to be an interesting season for Leicester. But again, I still think Craig Chokes the first guy to go. Defensively, Brighton didn't really cost, cause many problems. Someone like Glenn Murray, still playing Premier League football at 33 years old, is absolutely crazy. You know, it's just not good enough uh, anymore, unfortunately. So, if Brighton don't sort that type of thing out, they're going to be straight back down. I kind of see them going straight back down. I haven't seen anything from them that have been, yes, this isn't actually working. But with Anthony Knockhart back, their main guy from last season, maybe throwing him as a striker behind with Pascal Gross behind him could be could be a way that that could work out. But at the moment, they look very, very poor. And Chris Hutton may be suffering another relegation. Yes. Uh, well, we'll definitely see about that. Uh, Liverpool, of course, were at home to Crystal Palace. Nico, uh, you still unimpressed with the solutions that uh, Klopp is coming up with to work around the, the Coutinho-shaped hole that they have there. Um, but Amane and Liverpool do seem to continue uh, to press, 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 push, push, push and in the end, uh, force the issue. But, of course, that isn't always going to work. Yeah, I wouldn't say I'm unimpressed with the continuous ISO. I would just say that I'm, I'm unimpressed with uh, Jurgen Klopp's ability to, to hold possession and create things in possession, or perhaps not create things in possession, but manage a game through possession. I think they're so unsecure at times, especially when they have a lead, and that's something that we saw in the opening game of the season with Watford. You know, that, that never should have been a 3-3 draw. Uh, a team with the quality of Liverpool should be able to put away a game. And that's such a cliche thing to say. But at the same time, if your possession is so unsecure and you don't have enough in, in terms of positioning your players in certain ways and, and, and doing certain things on the ball that, you know, we saw in this game as well, which was the main way that, that Jurgen Klopp was trying to break uh, Crystal Palace down was it, it's just very static in the final third. It's calling upon players to to dribble and connect with one another without much movement off of the ball. And frankly, it was kind of lucky. And although they created a lot of chances and, and they definitely deserved to score, it was still it was a very nervous game from Liverpool. And if they are going to compete in the league and compete in elite competitions, then I think if they're not always going to want to be the underdog, you know, and maybe in a competition like the Europa League or even the Champions League where they can get away with with being the lesser team and being the off-ball team and pressing, creating chances uh, that way, eventually there will come a time where they need to create chances like they needed to against this Crystal Palace team and then maintain that lead. You know, you can't just always let the the the, the other team have the ball because you have insecurities on your set pieces. You have insecurities um, with, with aerial balls and, and everything that the system demands. And if you're just going back and forth all the time, not only does that demand a lot from your players physically, but the way that he sets up his system asks a lot of the fullbacks and those those holes and the the calling for Van Dyke and players players, you know, better defenders and, and players like that is th those things are sort of exacerbated 
affected by the the role that those fullbacks play and the role that the midfielders play. So I, I would like to see a little bit more game management from from Jurgen Klopp and specifically an evolution in his in his possession because it's something that we saw at Dortmund. That was the collapse of his final season at Dortmund was him unable to to evolve on the ball and he he still hasn't done that at Liverpool. One thing we certainly did address, Dave, was part of the reason that maybe Klopp doesn't look like he has a plan on that ball or maybe um, the, the Liverpool team don't look like they have a plan on the ball is because partly also it's, there's a psychological element with Jurgen Klopp that he certainly plays into. And I think Jose Mourinho has been very openly critical, um, well, maybe not so publicly open, but maybe within the managerial circles of how he, he thinks maybe Klopp is a bit of a tactical fraud. Um, and, you know, maybe that's hyperbole. Maybe that's some people... Um, Ex- exaggerating the stories that they tell me, but certainly I've, I've heard that around from some journalists. They, they, certain elements of the managerial community are a little bit skeptical. He does rely. I would say it's different, though. But he does I would rely. Say that, that quite he a has lot. a different reason as to why. I think Mourinho has a different reason as to why he he says that about Jurgen Klopp. I think it's because he has identified Liverpool and specifically Klopp since he's at the helm. Um, as no, someone Klopp, that he could replace within yeah. that top four. Well, I agree, but I also think he's been very, apparently he's been very openly critical of Klopp pre-Liverpool as well, also when he was at Dortmund. And you definitely say Mourinho wasn't particularly uh, Dortmund-oriented ever, uh, mm-hmm. really. So um, but even even having said that, Dave, I mean, you and I were discussing it the other day, it, you know, it really is then about the harmony of a team if you're looking to make them as creative as possible. Um, and that then could be maybe a criticism of Klopp, that if he's expecting that... He still doesn't have that sort of plan B, like Nico says. But if you know he's expecting plan A to come through at some point, because he's clearly kind of fo- trying to force that issue in a way. Yeah, I think it, there's, a, there's a few things that that could sort out this Liverpool problem. Again, it's going back to the they don't seem like they're as aggressive as they they were in, in spells under Klopp or Dortmund were, for example, in terms of using Gagan Preston as a weapon to to create chances. It seems a bit strange. Um, you know, we all know the possession stuff. We spoke about this a lot. Nico's got a great some great opinions on that. Again, using James Milner as a central midfielder to con, to control a game, to unlock a defence. It's just not what you want. You know, we saw from his pass map, we saw from, uh, you know, his use of the ball that he was pretty much feeding it to the, the left fullback and the left fullback was the one expecting to um, make moves and, and make things happen. And, you know, we nearly did fair, fair play to him, but then, there's got to be other assets to this Liverpool attack. And, you know, Robertson is a good player. Robertson will grab some assists, but at the same time, do you want him to be your overall create in the final third? Absolutely not. Maybe it is a change of style, a change of system again. You know, we've seen this 4-3-3 work quite well. We've seen a diamond work quite well. Um, But it just doesn't feel right without Coutinho, those two systems. I wouldn't play a three-man midfield if I was Liverpool manager without Coutinho. I just don't think it works very well. You know, I think you'd be switching the system up. You'd be looking to maybe a 4-2-3-1. And so you, you can press. You, know, you think about how Klopp pressed when he was at Dortmund. It was kind of in a 4-4-2 shape where the attacker midfielder, be it Marco Royce or Goethe, would join, or Shinji Kagawa, let's say, would join the press with the striker. And then they press in a 4-4-2. And that's something that Liverpool haven't been doing um, since moving to the 4-3-3. So I think Klopp needs to get rid of that defensive midfielder because he's not even using him to, to create play. He's not using him well enough in terms of a defensive um, you know, not shadow a defensive p- position when you know dealing with counterattacks. So I think scrap it. Go with the two two guys in central midfield. One of them holds you know Henderson in there. One guy box the box and let the front four get the ball quite you know as soon as possible. Even signing someone that's a little bit like a target man could be quite a good way for Liverpool to go. Um, you know we do speak about Huddersfield and how they've done quite well. Of course they're expected 
Goals is saying that they're going to flop. At the same time, they've got a target man in there that can take his chances in Mooney. So if Liverpool were to sign a player of his ilk, that could be another route to address this problem. Of course, we spoke about so many solutions to this problem. Julian Draxler could be one as a number 10. Um, but a target could really be a, a solution for them. Then Liverpool could hang it up. But they had that, didn't they, in Benteke, I suppose. It's just it's gone. Well, it's like it's gone. Liverpool ben... gone full, full, full circle so many times over the last few seasons, where they've literally gone from like every style, every system, and it just seems a bit. I don't know. Something's wrong. It's frustrating and frustrated, um, and I think uh, certain people are taking that frustration out on FSG right now. If FSG don't sign anyone in the summer and they do end up letting Coutinho go, or maybe he forces a move, we'll see. Um, but there's a, there's a lot to be said for Liverpool right now. Uh, and I think you guys have said a lot of it tactically, but there's certainly a feeling within the club that there's a slightly toxic atmosphere um, that isn't being spoken about. And I think the reason maybe it's not being addressed by people like Klopp and maybe people at the very top, and therefore the club is almost acting as if it's ignoring its fans, is because they don't currently have an answer. Um, and they don't know really what to do uh, about people saying lack of investment, etc. Um, do you although- think also, Lawrence, that maybe, that maybe uh, Liverpool in some sense, would be better off without Coutinho. No, yeah, absolutely. I I mean, I think a lot of fans now that they feel maybe a little less um, enchanted with Coutinho because maybe he's come out, put the transfer request in, they thought he wouldn't be that kind of character, et cetera, et cetera, um, would now not be uh, so upset if he left. But at the same time, I don't think it's about just about him leaving. It's about finding... Um, another player to then go in the midfield and be creative. It's not about the same, it's not about replacing him, it's about finding another system. But that then requires either a signing or someone to be promoted within the team, and neither of those things have happened. Um, so we'll see. I mean, you know, uh, come the end of the transfer window, I think a lot of Liverpool fans are hoping they keep hold of Coutinho. Uh, but at the same time, with, again, such a, a sort of a positivity-based squad, you, you partly hope that Klopp can uh, sort that dynamic ASAP. Uh, because also, I don't think Firmino, Firmino is looking quite as good without Coutinho. Um, and, you know, the the absence of um, Lallana is definitely hurting them, I feel. Anyway, let's move on to a team that constantly seems to be in transition and constantly seems to be uh, working its way around that as well as Southampton. Dave, they got the win uh, against... And this was actually one of the more exciting games of the weekend, wasn't it? Uh, Chicharito getting his two to bring them back level. And then late on, Wow. What the hell? <laughs> Charlie Austin obviously loves Under Armour. That's what I'd like to say first. He's a big fan of the brand. He's been working he, with them for a while now. It was a bit weird, wasn't it? it? Like where he was sort of pointing at the... It, does that make you think that maybe... I mean, obviously everyone thinks the heart's on the right side. It would be unusual if they did place the badge where the heart was because well, that would sort of be like a weird, slightly off-centre badge and it would look a little bit aesthetically not, not so pleasing. But yeah, I love Under Armour. And then he absolutely gave no, Mark Noble... Uh, ultimate English banter, really, Dave. <laughs> yeah, just I think I think with with Charlie Austin, I think he's the type of guy to be like. Last season, the Southampton crest was on that side, and he just didn't realise that they'd switched it. Or I don't know, you know, maybe it was to the heart. That's a nice way to go. Let's let's say Charlie Austin did that because he, you know, it was for his mom or for his girlfriend or something like that. But the game was a, a game of real, you know, real quality, but also real bad quality in a way where we saw the likes of Nathan Redman stepping up in a way and becoming. Maybe becoming this season Southampton's breakout guy, becoming the Sado Mane type player. I thought he was fantastic through the game. Obviously, the the first uh, the assist for the first. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This goal was a brilliant pass, something that we've not seen from Nathan Redman, and hopefully he will develop his game and he will continue his, his progression under Pellegrini. He could be really, really be the breakout guy there, but... Um, you know, not just that pass, the pass later on for the penalty incident. Um, the first penalty incident, should I say, was a great ball from Nathan Redmond in central midfield to um, Davis in between the two centre-halves. Again, it was West Ham's defensive position and it was so poor, but I quite like Nathan Redmond. And it, it could be an evolution of a player there. But in terms of West Ham, what they've done, they've signed Jose Font, um, who pretty much looks awful um, in a West Ham shirt, and they've signed Pablo Zabaleta. Zabaleta is looking like he's too old for the Premier League and he's becoming a weakness. You think about the first goal, he absolutely allowed Nathan Redmond, the whole you know, the whole left flank, to slow himself down, pick a pass, goal time. And the same thing happened, you know, the mistake for the penalties, the second penalty, should I say, pushing Yoshida in the box. It happened this the week before, the weakness that West Ham had against Manchester United was on that left wing or right back for Pablo Zabaleta. And if they don't sort this out, if they don't, and potentially make another signing at right back. They're going to have the problem that they had last season, which was they didn't have a right back, and they ended up playing Mikel Antonio there. I think the bright things for West Ham is they've got Mikel Antonio. Mikel Antonio is a wonderful forward, whether he's played right, left, or through the middle. I'd quite like to see him playing off Javier Hernandez. Again, the, the two goals that Hernandez scored were both um, efforts from Antonio that were spilled. One of them a header, and then Hernandez turning it into the box. The classic fox in the box manoeuvre, the Gary Goals manoeuvre, as I like to call fox it. Fox in the boat. Or yeah. the the shot from the shot from range, Mikel Antonio again spilled. But it's kind of like that. Or Antonio's like a you know he's a, he's a sort of a conference player that's come up and just grown with it, but he's got that unknown still, and I really like that unknown. I think that's better than an Altovich's unknown because if an Altovich's unknown is elbowing someone in the head, not like creating something out of nothing. Do you know what I mean? It's, it just seems a bit strange for um, Bilic to to favour those types of players. Obviously a big signing and so forth, but I just it's a bit of a mess. West Ham formation selection just kind of for me it's going to be Bilic out ASAP. It's a real challenge back there. Uh, I'm still really enjoying the likes of Gabbiadini. The likes, I mean, Gabbiadini struggled uh, earlier on, but, uh, you know, got, got the goal early on in this game. So let's see. And obviously, enjoying, everyone enjoys Tadic. Um, I think every Liverpool fan is just watching Southampton and thinking, who could we get? Um, <laughs> uh, and they will not get anyone, I believe, from Southampton to come the end of the season, uh, not even Van Dyke. Uh, Dave, but actually, Nico, I'll, I'll come to you on this one because. Pulis is having a, a classic Pulis season already. Uh, he's quote, quote, quote. He's tactic, tactic, tactic. He's 1-0, 1-0, joint top of the league technically, if you don't count goals because they've just got two 1-0 wins. And the second one was against Burnley uh, and, and, and Sean Dyche. Yeah, I think, <coughs> excuse me. Yeah, I think he continues to do some 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 nice things, especially if you're a, if you're a numbers guy. Uh, nice things in terms of creating chances and how he does that. Um, but, how, does he, you know, how does he do that? How does he do that? 
is generally uh, consistently creating high quality chances through set pieces and aerial plays. And he has the he has the the tools to do that. You know, Gareth McCauley was, I think, one of the highest scoring defenders in Europe's top five leagues in terms of headers last season. Yep. yep. Um, and he has to I, I'm not I had I don't watch too much uh, West Brom myself, but it's <laughs> for for someone to consistently be creating that much off of set pieces is certainly a testament to how you know good of a coach or maybe how much time he spends on, on the training pitch in terms of uh, set pieces and, and headers but you know he continues to be Tony Pulis he continues to, to do things that are defy defy uh, defy logic and some people like it and some people don't chuck it in the mixer as most people would say Dave I'm a big fan of the mixer play I think Tony P knows what he's doing again is, is he is expected goals as uh Pretty awesome, right, Nico? Consistently outperforming what you guys have uh, given him, which is nothing. But Tony Pulis is, again, he's building for, for the future with West Brom. Uh, they're becoming a real Premier League mid-table team now, and I think that's a good thing for West Brom. They're not the, the biggest club in the Midlands. I think the Baggies fans will say that themselves, but they're outperforming well, they are right now, though, Dave. their bigger rivals. They are, yeah. They're, they're well, obviously I mean, they're, in the Midlands. Well, obviously Leicester City, but, I mean, uh, you know, consistently, maybe you'd say, uh, and history-wise... There's certainly a case to be made for West Brom, if not, you know, a conclusive one. Yeah, definitely. You know, I think what I class the Midlands isn't, you know, Leicester's a little bit further. I don't know why Leicester, I would class Leicester B, to be quite honest. I'd, I'd definitely say in the between Midlands. South and Midlands. Southern oh. Midlands. Well, I'd say Middle Midlands, you know, the likes of Birmingham, City, um, Aston Villa, Wolverhampton Wanderers, who are phew, blowing, blowing um, the championship apart. Again, West Brom are top of that pile. So it, Tony Pulis is doing a good job, and I... I fully expect him to to do well again this season and, and outperform where people you know suppose he's going to finish. Peak West Brom, of course. Um, we we've seen Gareth Barry there. Uh, Liverpool watching him and thinking, who could we get? Uh, Swansea City nil, Manchester United four. Dave, Manchester United were like horses later on in the game. Early on, they were just like sort of, you know, just sort of not. They weren't horses. Brian cr- c- uh, predicting this one correctly on the uh, the Coral Preview, right? Wow, you watched the Coral Preview. You are one of uh, you one of the people who stuck with it. I, I was playing uh, I was playing a video game and I just thought I'd turn it on in the background. It's so funny listening. how many people incidentally watch the True Geordie and how many people just you know watch him wholeheartedly. Um, g- but go or ahead. Or hate watch him. Uh, uh, fuck you. So uh, Swansea <laughs> nil, Manchester United four, Bay getting the goal at the end of the half day, 45 minutes. Uh, and what, how would you not love Eric Bay? He's a great player. Seems like a great guy. Have you seen the clip of that he put on Twitter today? Uh, it's well good. Well, I think it was on his Instagram and it's been pushed around Twitter, but it was it was uh, very interesting. It was Latin even rich in the training room did him. Tapping him on the arm, and then was it two kicks that he connected with Zlatan's back? Dave, you only ever land off. one kick on Zlatan Ibrahimovic before having to run. Yeah, this is true, and, and Bay did scamper out of there. And luckily for you know for, for Bay's health, that Ibrahimovic has just had surgery a few um, weeks and months ago, so he was a lucky, lucky man. But again, what you're getting from Eric Bay is a real good defender, defender's defender very aggressive, uh, very pacey across the ground. What I loved against Swansea was his ability to cover on the flanks. It was just fantastic. You know, that's for me, that squat splits you from an excellent centre-back to a world-class centre-back. It's having that ability to cover wide. And Bay's got that down 
down to a T. Um, so it's just going to be a matter of time before he's in the bracket of Sergio Ramos with Benucci. I think it's just this Champions League season and I think people will start talking him in, the, in a similar light there because he's very, very impressive, very powerful, classic Mourinho defender. But I think the one that really shone for me, not even Bay, was Phil Jones. You know, started the season so well. Been so composed, been very on Phil Jones-esque. You know, the Phil Jones that I hate to think about is the Phil Jones that played up against Luis Suarez and gave away one penalty where he hacked him and then handballed it for another penalty. That's, you know, that's not the Phil Jones we're getting this season. He's very calm, collective, not only on the ball, but off the ball. His movement's very good. You know, he was the guy that was making the, the key interception. You know, you think of those two chances that uh, Swansea had to nearly, you know, get through on the United goal. Both times, Phil Jones out of nowhere. Steps in, nicks the ball out and plays out. And that's the Phil Jones I want to see. I really want to see a full season. I want to see 38 games from Phil Jones this season. I don't want to see any injuries. I want to see him, you know, maybe looking after himself in a different way, doing some yoga or doing, just changing something up so he doesn't get injured again. But I'm very impressed with Phil Jones. But I think the defence, those two centre-halves, were the reason why Swansea had to change it and then United went on to win 4-0. Uh, Dave, I've got a question for you about Manchester United. And, and of course, then, individually, Mourinho... Some people say Mourinho looked beyond it. Some, and I think I was one of those sort of dissenting voices. Some people were saying they thought that, um, you know, he sort of had his time in his goal, that, that, that his days had come and gone. Uh, not necessarily because of his style of play, but partly because of the style of play and the boring nature. But it is very sort of similar to the way that he built a lot of teams a few years ago. However, this one looks like an almost next generation version of Mourinho now. You know, there's a lot of youth think, in there that what a lot of people have accused him of not being able to bring through. There's a sort of a, a cool factor to it, which was different to the way the ways and the reasons that Chelsea swaggered around town or Inter Milan scared people or his Real Madrid team sort of stoically uh, got a, went about their task. So this is a new iteration of Mourinho. And, that, you know, we've been talking about this on the podcast for a while. Very often managers only have maybe one, possibly two parts of their life cycle. And only the very best can completely, not shift all their focus, but you definitely say Mourinho has evolved. Absolutely ridiculous. I think with, with Mourinho, maybe you get into the, the sort of um, back to the Real Madrid cycle in a way, where this team looks a little bit like that, where they're very, 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 very good on the counter-attack. And I think it's it's players as well as Mourinho that have that have sort of put the United in this position. I think Mourinho still needs to work a little bit on his possession game. I think there's still aspects that... United could have gone on and scored more goals in that first half if the fullbacks had been higher, if Marcus Rashford had pulled out wide a little bit more, you know, slightly opening up Swansea in a, in a different way. They could have done a bit better there. And I think the score is flattering, to say the least. I think United were defensively good for the 90 minutes, but attackingly, attacking-wise, were good for 10 minutes. Nico? There's still, there's still work to be done. Uh, go and watch Dave's summary of the weekend. Dave, you, you've done a, a summary of the game, or you will be doing a summary of the game? Yeah, I've done, I've done one too, yes. It's unleash Paul Pogba and United will win the league. Uh, to find out why, click on the YouTube video. Good God. Uh, Nico, you said absolutely, uh, absolute rubbish, absolute tosh, absolute pish posh. You poo-pooed my idea. Yeah, because I, I don't think it's it's necessarily a, a massive evolution of what he's done differently in the past. You know, he's learned and been a master of how to be compact in defense, and that's fine and good. And and you know, it, it's I'm not gonna dumb down or or insult that style of play because I think there is change. there are merits to that. But I think to suggest that he's massively evolved his play style, uh, you know, Dave even touched on it a little bit. Um, his his bias may be, may be cracking a little bit there, but uh, the fact that Mourinho's possession play 
against opponents that could actually punish him is still very rudimentary. It's still very uh, uh, unimaginative, and and it's it takes as little risk as possible. And if you look at actually Mourinho's like seven core beliefs of philosophy, they actually they they don't make much sense and they contradict one another because he he talks about you know having the ability to you know if if you're brave then you don't need the ball to score but he doesn't take much risk on the ball which is actually riskier than if you don't have the ball so i think there are elements of this Mourinho team that are excellent and i think they'll they'll win things and it's a very good team but to suggest that this is a completely new Mourinho or an evolution of what he, even what he did before i think is is a, is a stretch because it's the same Manchester United. It's the same Mourinho. Um, they're doing a lot of things better than they were last season. And they have Lukaku who helps that. They have Mkhitaryan and Pogba who are doing a lot better than they were last year. Or Pogba, pretty much the same. You know, he, he was excellent last year. It was just things around him weren't as good. But I, I still think that this Manchester United could do more. There are things that Mourinho could do uh, a little bit better. But r- right now he's beating what's in front of him, and I can't really criticize him for that. Interesting. There are four, I, I want to say, laws to every story. Um, and there are, I mean, yeah, maybe the, no, actually there are only four. Um, and I'll list those for you. Um I'd say there's enhancements, obsolescence, reversals, and uh, retrievances. Work it out for yourself, but go and... Uh, Get it in the mixer. Dave, they're playing a, a, a sort of a, a soundbite back of himself, uh, <laughs> rather than actually saying something of any interest or meaning on the podcast. Um that's all of the, the Premier League games for the weekend. Obviously, Nico, by the time this podcast comes out, uh, Man City will have played. Of course, they'll have won 3-0. Um, you, let's not preview that Everton game for that reason, but we, we certainly can uh, talk a little bit about Man City. Uh, Nico, are you, are you confident still of Man City? You know, do you think this is going to be somewhat of a test against this Everton team? Because... Well, I mean, let's put it this way. This will be this will probably be one of the biggest challenges that any of the top maybe six teams have faced so far this season. Yeah, I'm confident in Manchester City's ability to to, to put in a, a great performance against Everton and certainly win. I think they're missing a lot with obviously getting rid of someone like Romelu Lukaku. We've seen how good he's been under Mourinho this year, unleashing all the qualities that he has, the power, the pace, the strength. That's a lot of what carried Everton last season, especially against Manchester City, you know, being going direct to Lukaku, one on one versus Gael Clichy, you know, is is the stuff of nightmares for any Manchester City beautiful. fan. But Absolutely I think, um, I think you know, there are things I, I haven't spoken highly of of the things that Ronald Koeman is able to do tactically, but I think specifically uh, specifically against Pep Guardiola, um, them growing up with similar ideas, both playing for Barcelona at the same time, and, and those Cruyffian ideals, I think they they kind of have. Um, Kuman has elements that he can expose uh, that are a, a part of Guardiola's team, but I, I st- I'm still really confident in Manchester City's ability to uh, put in a great performance against Everton and win, especially since they're missing Lukaku. Yeah, and they will miss Lukaku for quite a while. Uh, I believe he's at Manchester United, injured. Um, <laughs> Of course, there's a couple of other things. Uh, we didn't mention, obviously, that uh, Leicester fans have been... Apparently, Leicester themselves, a club, have come out and condemned the homic, homophobic chants that they uh, their fans were chanting at Brighton. I imagine we may see a little bit more of that, though. I'd, I'd hate to uh, throughout the season, obviously, in Brighton. 
um, if you don't know, there is sort of a um, there are homosexual connotations with the city of Brighton in the UK, and therefore people use it as a point of what they believe to be banter. Most people believe to be regressive, stupid jokes. Um, not even jokes, just sort of comments. Uh, and then, of course, uh, Liverpool, uh, Dave will play Hoffenheim. Uh, Liverpool teeter on the edge of going either way, really. But uh, after the sort of aggressive end to the first game and the, the press comments, although I get the feeling that they were taken the wrong way by English people rather than uh, either Klopp or Nagelsmann meaning uh, anything sort of angry towards the the other one. Uh, it seems a lot more German than English in the sort of bitchy nature that's going on here. I think they're, they're friends. They're, they're friends. They, they call each other and so forth. But again, the first leg was good. It was a competitive game. Hoffenheim sure arguably should have won that game. Yeah. I think, yeah, I think it was, it was, there was good quality to it, but then a lack of quality in front of goal, especially from Hoffenheim. I think they are missing Rudy, who starred for Munich, um, on Friday night's game against Bayer Leverkusen, won that game three goals to one. There's some tactical issues with Bayern Munich that I feel that won't will mean they won't win the Champions League this season uh, under Carlo Ancelotti. That if he doesn't sort out, won't go. But anyway, back to the Hoffenheim game. They kind of need to go for this three-man midfield. I think they played they played a three-four-three against Liverpool. It didn't quite work. Uh, Liverpool's three-man midfield kind of overloaded them there in a defensive sense, and they couldn't find the, the same angles and you know passes in behind the opposition's midfield that they did last season so I'd like to see Amiri Demir by starting central midfield but maybe um, Jupp behind him sorry Rupp behind him um, but it's it's going to be a test for Nagelsmann coming to Anfield on a you know big big game and seeing if he can pull it off because the problem with Hoffenheim is their squad's quite light so if they get the Europa League that could really cost them in the Bundesliga so it's a really really big game for Nagelsmann and a massive game for Liverpool of course Talk to me Dave, a little bit about Bayern Munich because we might as well go to Bundesliga now um, it started, like you say, Friday night. Big game. Yeah, yeah, it was a big game. It got um, actually got heart, nearly rained off um, at half-time. It was absolutely chucking it down in the first half, and they, I think they waited about 30 minutes to, for the rain to settle down. But it was it was an interesting performance from um, from Bayern. I thought Rudy was really good in central midfield. I thought he was playing some some really nice passes really um, good. along a lot. Rudy good. He had a really good performance alongside. Uh, you know, the likes of Tolisso, who scored on his Bundesliga debut, and uh, Vidal, you expect a lot from Vidal. It's that energy, it's the tackling, it's the turning over, and he did that very well. I think the problem was, the f- tactically, their three forwards weren't working back in a defensive sense. The likes of Lewandowski and Thomas Muller, and, of course, um, you know, in the first half, it was Frank Ribery on the left wing. They weren't working back, and Leverkusen opened up so many opportunities with overlaps when they were switching it from one side to the other side, where the... The space was just absolutely huge. And if you go to the Leverkusen goal, that's what happened. There was so much space for uh, the Leverkusen uh, lad to pick pick the spot. And it was just one of these things where you're, like, you're thinking, this is quite basic. This is very un-Carlo Ancelotti-esque. You know, he, loved, he loves defending a 4-4-2. That's why his Real Madrid side that won La Decima was so, so, so good. Uh, but it was it was just a bit weird to see them defending in such a poor manner and, and to leave their fullbacks so isolated in these sort of positions. You know, Kings of Coman came on, Robin came on, and it didn't change. It's the same problem. Whether Ancelotti thinks Vidal and Tolisso can cover the flanks and can cover all the pitch, I think he may be a little bit mistaken. Maybe a three-five-two could be a better way for Bayern Munich to go um, this season and allow allow two forwards maybe to stay up instead of the three and, and play that three-man midfield. That would suit a bit better. But Nicolas Schuler uh, scored on debut. Um, an excellent uh, header from a Rudy set piece. And, of course, Lemdowski scoring from the penalty spot after a VAR decision. 
um, which has been trialled in the Bundesliga. So, again, we're moving on, transition. I expect uh, Leverkusen to do OK, do better than they did last season in the Bundesliga, but Bayern, they will win the Bundesliga, but the Champions League will be a bit too far if they don't sort the defensive problems out. VAR does seem to be the... Um... The big debate in Europe at the moment. It also seems to be much more of a debate in uh, Italy and also La Liga. Will Premier League get it soon? We'll see. Um, although goal line technology took a little while, so let's just sort of stick with that for a while, guys, uh, and see where we go from there. Um, of course, we also uh, can't go beyond the idea, Dave, that um, Borussia Dortmund won as well. Um, I mean, come on, you know, 3-0. And the guy who stayed over the um, the summer, Aubameyang getting a goal, Pulisic getting a goal, and of course, Mark Bartra as well. This team looks like they were flexing. I think this team is going to be one of the best teams to watch in Europe. Ajax last season were great to watch. Such a good style, pressing from the front, creating loads of chances. And now he's got a pretty much got a similar team, a similar makeup of a side, so he can you know put the same style of football you know on top of that team. You know, you're thinking Pulisic who. Well, for me, changed a few games in the Champions League last season when he was brought on um, under Thomas Tuchel. You know, with his drive, with his ability to dribble at people. Think of who's meant Dembele. He's so so talented, and he's uh, you know he's arguably further down the the development road than Christian Pulisic. But to have someone like Christian Pulisic as a backup when you're like, oh, he's meant Dembele. You you've got a wall. You've you've just disappeared. You, you're not picking up your phone. You're supposed to be in at training, and you're not. And you've got Christian Pulisic, who seems to be a real worker and seems to be a guy that owes a little bit to Dortmund in a way. It's a, it's a harder route to um, make it to the Bundesliga for, you know, someone that started off life in America than, for example, you're saying, uh, you know, someone that's lived in Dortmund his whole life. So, again, Pulisic has been given the chance by Dortmund, so hopefully he'll have a different sort of respect for them. Obviously, Dembele came from uh, Ron last season from France, so I kind of like this Pulisic, and I, I, I want to see more of him. Mario Goetzer, of course, coming back as well for Dortmund, um, grabbing an assist. Well, what's wrong with Dembele yeah. wanting to go to Barcelona? I don't. I don't think it's, there's anything wrong with that. I think the professionalism of disappearing, and not not you know uh, listening to you know listening to your phone ringing when the club that pays you money, um, and you getting your wages fined and you getting suspended by the club. Uh, that's that's terrible. That's not good. I don't mind if you you want a stepping stone. And you're going from you know the French league to Dortmund to Barca, and that's fine. Right, but, but right. But be don't professional you think about that, it. I, I completely agree. But don't you think that you're not receiving and you're not taking into account all the information? What if he went to the club and said, hey, I'd like to maybe consider a move and, and talk to Barcelona about those things? And then they just straight up said, no, you know, you can't do that. We're not letting you do that. So he has to take matters into his own hands and then discuss uh, things with Barcelona at the time that he can discuss them. And that's the the, the information that we have received now is the, cl- is the one that the club are putting out because they want to put Usman Dembele in a bad light because they don't want him to leave. You so would also say I, that, I, I mean, not, not turning up for what you are paid to do yeah is certainly a certainly but if he's not allowed to make the career decisions that he feels like he should i think any player especially one of dembele's quality would want to move to barcelona because it's probably a boyhood dream of his or there are financials i I imagine i will have made an argument in the opposite way at some point and and (laughs) to to what i'm about to say but at the same time (laughs) you enter into a an agreement and you enter into a a multi-million pound agreement with mm. um, a, a high-end club within Europe, knowing um, what a, a player's movement is like. And obviously there are people behind the scenes who believe you can put pressure, social pressure, uh, media pressure, all these sorts of things on someone like that, um, a, a team like, like Dortmund. Um, but at the same time, 
you know, if, if it is the, this way, then you sort of enter into that agreement knowing the situation you put yourself in. And you know there are certain ways of doing things and certain ways to not do it. And I guess this probably wouldn't be the best way to do it. I'm not completely just. I'm not completely disagreeing with you, but I, what I, what I'll just you know reiterate the the point that I made before. You know, if he, if the club has already denied, you know, they just don't want him to leave because they see value in him. I think um, it was Luca Girl that I was talking to last season that you know uh, Thomas Tuchel had his had a lot of ideas about the players. You know that he thought he was going to be uh, have under his control. You know he had. He was speaking at a press conference or some sort of coaching seminar in Dubai talking about this set play that he had dreamt up. You know, it was Ilkay Gundogan passes it to Dembele, who passes it to Aubameyang. He had these, like, dreams in his head, and obviously these things have not panned out because Gundogan left before he could really do anything with him, and now Usman's leaving, and he's already left the club. So... I understand that, but I think, you know, like the point maybe that Neymar makes when he left Barcelona is that, you know, footballers have an extremely short career and it's one that is an incredibly incredible opportunity for a very limited group of people. So I think not enough do we put ourselves in their shoes and say, you know, if, if you know, because if he waits another year, you know, maybe he tears his ACL. Maybe that move never happens. Maybe, maybe. certain things happen at Barcelona. So yeah, you have to I take mean, you could, you cannot, yeah, these opportunities. I, I, yeah, I, I guess it's it's also easy to paint it the other way. Um, and I don't necessarily agree with one side or the other, but you could also say, well, he could show some commitment to the club that he signed a contract with and believed in and was willing to take the money off in the first place or also willing but to take the But Usman Dembele was one, of the, was one of the most, like, sought after talent yeah, but, in the world. but so then you'd also say like, it doesn't it doesn't like just go Corbin one way plucked him from obscurity but no but no but it doesn't it doesn't a narrative doesn't just demand that you either pluck someone from obscurity and therefore they owe you or mm-hmm. it's it's that they are you know the greatest player in the the world and they chose you very often it's but the gray zone but it's a difference in between. between but it's a difference between how we treat players like Dortmund wouldn't care if it was a player that they didn't give a shit about or if they didn't see value in if that were the case then they would let them you know negotiate on their own time or whenever they wanted to leave the club but since it's an asset that they can make money off of just like any other player I'm not saying that that's nefarious but since it's an asset that they can make money off of since it's an asset that they want at least for another two or three years then then you know we we care about it and we toss this subjective view of morality into it and that's I, th- I think it's I, ridiculous. I, I don't. I don't uh, think it's morality. I think that you were the one that came in with with the moral side of things. I was just saying. Okay. I think. I think there's a. Ref- there's a. Ref- you guys said it's wrong. It's wrong. Well, 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 hold on. Let, let me let me weigh in here, Nico. Right, oh, Nico, okay. you've got an apple business, right? You're selling apples to the folks on your road. You know, in wherever you're in America, in uh, Ontario or Illinois or you know Orlando. Orlando. <laughs> <laughs> Ontario. You're selling Dave, your apples, geez. right? You've got a really good apple seller who's um, a young lad. He's uh, been at a previous Apple store down the road and you've, you've brought him into your team. You're thinking, I'm going to keep you until 2021 and you're <laughs> going to sell some good apples for me. And then he doesn't turn up for work and you've paid him. You've paid him, you've paid him this week for, for his, his apple tending and his ability to shine up a good apple, get it nice and red, and he's not showed up. And yeah. he's not responding Dave, Dave, to your we've already discussed and this. You know we've already discussed he's been to Walmart. Is that maybe he came up to he me earlier and said, I want Nico. to go to Walmart Nico, before. And I just said, nope, you can't ever, you can't leave because I need you here. I think, saying, actually, I think saying the word ever is definitely a little bit difficult there because you're also painting it the other way then. 
Right, but uh, what I'm saying is a year a year in sports or even one transfer window to the next because we know that this transfer would not happen in January because of the type of transfer that usually happens in January. A year in sports is a millennia. So much can change. And maybe this move, maybe the moves that he wants to have, and, and maybe that's a little short-sighted, but maybe the move that he wants to have now wouldn't happen in the summer. Maybe they identify different targets. Maybe he injures himself there's a whole myriad of things that can happen. And I just don't think it's the craziest thing in the world for him to to want to move. And it seems like if he's doing these things that we're deeming as disrespectful, then there's no other way for him to do it because I'm sure he would take the normative ways. He wouldn't apply all this pressure on himself with the media and him skipping practice and him being fine financially because that's really what players care about. And whatever I, I actually think, I think you're then, so what you're doing is you're then applying, I think, it's very easy to say, I'm sure he wouldn't do this. That's then an, an application of your own subjective belief that the player wouldn't do that and that he would always be the one that would act in a moral way and he's been forced into this situation. So it's, no, I'm, not, I mean, I'm not saying I'm not saying he I, what I'm saying is it's he's obviously this has been the more difficult route. This has been the yeah, past, but, the path but, but of I, the most I, resistance. I, I, so think I, go, think I think it, I think it, it goes somewhere between that. I think it goes somewhere between. It's definitely a battle less about the actual player itself, at least for me. And this is maybe the, a third way to look at it i don't know if any of them are true then maybe there's a a belief or maybe all three of them can be true at the same time the the third way for me is that there's a battle between money men at the very top he's probably got mm. an agent i mean he definitely has an agent and if he doesn't have an agent uh then you know maybe he's got a parent maybe he's got someone else advising him and that agent will have advised him one way at one time then advising him to do something else and very often the way that people lay things out behind the scenes or you know maybe when they're trying to get someone riled up is oh, we need to do this. This this is the only way to do this. And I don't necessarily believe that either way is true. I think it, it goes somewhere, there's, there's a bit of a gray area here. And actually, it, you know, we all acknowledge that the, the movement of labor within football is probably not the easiest uh, it, it can be right now. Maybe it's made easier or relaxed, or maybe, you know, we sort of assess those rules and we could come up with something better. But at the same time, I don't think that means that players are the trapped people or clubs are the trappers always. I, again, we acknowledge there's a contract always between these people. And also that, you know, you say there's a very select few that get to do this. There's a reason there's a very select few that get to play in the top end of football. And that's because the, there's barriers to entry. And part of that is money and investment. And these players are now seeing a big share or a, a part of that share of the money and investment. So when, when they then get trapped in one place, it becomes very difficult to make some sort of moral argument for or against them. Because actually both sides are benefiting from the deal. And actually, yeah, you, you'd argue agree. you'd argue very often people sort of make actually what they do is they transpose the fans' emotions onto the player or the club, and then sort of act like that. Oh well, you know. So for instance, everything that's going on with Liverpool at the moment, you'll read the Liverpool Echo, you read whatever. Liverpool are upset with the way that um, that Barcelona are acting, or uh, Coutinho is upset with not being able to leave the club. Now you could you could realistically believe that either of those things are true. But at the same time, you could also realistically believe that neither of those things are true. Yeah, I can, I can definitely understand that third point. And I think there are other people influencing the situation like uh, agents who have a have a dog in the fight as well. You know, they want as much money as possible. So maybe they are influencing the player to do certain things that are not correct, you know, contractually. But I think, like you said, there is a possibility for all three perspectives to be correct in some way. 
Yeah, except Dave's wrong. So let's move <laughs> yeah, to Syria. So um, um, Lawrence, I wasn't talking about football, though. I was talking about Apple sale, selling. So <laughs> that's a really good point. Nico's just gone out of business by Walmart again. So I think it's his whole problem in America at the moment, Nico, with that fella in charge that's got a little bit too much fake tan on. The big uh, orange. Steve Bannon's gone. Um, one thing that was definitely unusual, Dave. Not the, not the white supremacist orange, but the other one. Yeah. Um, who'd, who'd have thought that a white supremacist who then lightens uh, their own skin using a sort of orangey tan uh, believed that white supremacy was a thing? Um, on a very fundamental level, you'd have to say that there's a there's a flaw in calling it white supremacy. Um, anyway, um, d- let's move on to Serie A uh, and... Of course, uh, the, the, the excitement that's going on in that league after we've brushed over white supremacy within sentences. Um, let's move on to something which, you know, people actually tune in for. Uh, Juventus uh, started the weekend, Nico, with a win against uh, Cagliari. Uh, it's not all harmony at Juventus right now. Um, they're not rocking because they are Stile Juve, but, you know, there's, a, there's aging going on. There's... There's definitely sort of a, there may be a feeling that the club needs to now, and I hate to say this, and maybe it sounds like blasphemy, move on from Allegri. I would completely disagree with that 150% because I think Allegri is the, I was actually going to, you know, before you said that, say the complete opposite, that I think Allegri is a manager that you could see uh, longevity in his career at a specific club, and Juventus would be the perfect place for that because I think, you, uh, Allegri, the, the most significant thing about him and the thing that I wrote about him last season is his ability for change, his ability for dynamism, his ability to to be so fluid in the way that he plays football that I think what we're seeing now and the Douglas Costa signing is sort of a microcosm of that is the evolution towards a different Juve under Allegri is an attack is a more attacking Juve. It's, it's less defensive. It's less centered around that, that three back system that, you know, really centered around the, the brilliance of Benucci, which obviously they no longer have into a more, you know, attack minded Juventus with Douglas Costa and, and Gonzalo Higuain and all these other brilliant attacking players. And I think that's where we're going to see this, this season from Juventus. And I think it'll be another successful league campaign. There are obviously more contenders in the league with Roma making moves both behind the scenes and, and sort of on the pitch. Napoli continue to be good, which is a, a, something that I think we'll touch on later on as well. Um, but I, I think they're going to, it's going to be another dominant league campaign as well with some progression in Europe. Really glad you said that, and that's why I said I, I hate to say it. There have been some people fielding that question, though, more recently about moving on from the Allegri era. Most of those people come from outside Juventus, um, and maybe it's just people trying to rock the boat. Um, let's actually then move on to some of their competitors. Uh, Napoli, first of all, Nico, they've got a big game coming up this week, and they prepare for it very well uh, with a 3-1 win over Verona, Hellas Verona. Um, but they also got a red card in that game. Yeah, I, I unfortunately didn't get to see the game, but I did get to see their last match against Nice in the Champions League qualifiers, which is the second leg they'll they'll be playing this week so on Tuesday against. Uh, yeah, they won two 0 in the first leg, and I think what I wanted to you know talk about and something that I'm currently writing about Sari is I, I wrote about his ability to 
maybe change the way in which we think that we can attack last season, you know, engaging defensive blocks much higher than they'd like to be engaged through some in- incredible and, and inventive midfield play, you know, passing the ball quickly, triggering pr- uh, pressing responses, and then using the their very miniature but quick front three uh, great podcasts to get, you know, to get in behind defenses in a league that, you know, is, is more traditional in the way that they like to defend with, with uh, big defenders that, that can usually, would usually be able to outmuscle and stifle the creativity of someone like Lorenzo Insigne, Dries Mertens, and, and, uh, and Jose Callejon. Um, but also watching their first performance against Nice is also their ability to engage teams defensively more than they, or sooner than they'd like to. And that really comes with the brilliance of how Maurizio Sarri uses his back line. Um, and he has all the pieces there right now to do that. You know, they have three very athletic, quick defenders in Gulam, uh, Husin, and Kudabali, and then one very intelligent one in Raul Albiol. Um, and it's just, it's brilliant to watch the team you know, last season I was I was sad because uh, Napoli unfortunately didn't win anything, and it was one of those things where you felt like a, a great team and a great philosophy and a great way in which a team played was going to be forgotten. But they have another opportunity to do that this season, and I think they actually might win something. And and they're even possibly even better to watch this season. So if you do get do get a watch a chance to watch Serie A, uh, specifically Napoli, do it because it, it's an incredible style of football. Wow. Uh, a very compelling argument as to why you should watch either of those guys. Um, of course, AC Milan must also be mentioned at this point as well, Dave. Three uh, nil to them against Crotona. After uh, obviously after the the red, the, things didn't go their way. They got a penalty early, and Frank Keshi put that one away. Then it's Cotrone uh, or Cotrone uh, then scored, and then Suso, my boy, uh, also got the goal. Interestingly, in this one, Dave, it is a it's not a complete reformation of the squad. Um, but it is, there are a lot of new faces in there for that AC Milan team. And one of them is Fabio Barini. <laughs> Fabio Barini, where, where, is he, where has he been all my life? Um, you know, I think what we saw from Milan, Benucci, instantly coming in and making a big impact. He completed the most passes in Serie A this weekend, 95, in fact. Frank Chiesi as well as a player that did very well at the start of last season for Atalanta. Then it kind of dropped off with all the rumours around him. Um Played very well pre-season for Milan and has taken that to the first game. So it's going to be a really interesting season for Milan. Both um, AC and Inter are just like fascinating objects at the moment where, you know, anything could happen, any style of football could come out of there. Spalletti and and Montella, two of the guys in Serie A that are making things tick nicely for whichever club they've been at recently. So it's going to be really interesting to see if they can combat Juve. But the Juve machine, as as Nico mentioned, is just going to roll on. Um, I expect them to win the league again. But it'll be nice just to see you know, the two Milan teams back in there and they start, they've started the weekend well, they started the season well, should we say. So congratulations to those two guys back in the game. Of course, Real Madrid and Barcelona also played in La Liga. Let's assess those. Gareth Bale getting a goal uh, in the game for Real Madrid, getting the first and opening goal in that one, uh, getting the 3-0 win against Deportivo whilst Real Madrid coped, in inverted commas, without uh, Cristiano Ronaldo. They'll also have to cope, in inverted commas, without Sergio Ramos, who also got sent off late in this game. Uh, 92nd minute he was sent off Um, not that we're particularly surprised but this is a game which was littered with yellow cards in the second half Um, Dave though they they got through this one um, and a 3-0 win is I mean it's as good as as good as they're going to get isn't it yeah I think so I think we're seeing the diamond still being played by Zinedine Zidane and I expect Barcelona to maybe move to a diamond so it'll be a league of diamonds, um, but obviously Real have the advantage with the extra goal. 
both teams, you know, Deportivo La Coruña and, uh, you know, Real Betis, not really the standard of Barcelona and, and Real at the moment, obviously Barcelona in disarray. Uh, Messi at the post three times, um, which is pretty incredible uh, for any game um, and any player like Lionel Messi who you expect to put the ball in the back of net. So behind the scenes is going to be interesting. I think what Barcelona need to do is get to the end of the window and, and make the signings. Um, and then just go with there and trust in Valdeverdi's coaching ability. I think the the only bad thing there is if the board start putting the pressure on Valdeverdi if the, the results don't go the right way. And you can see a similar thing happening to Rafa Benitez, where he may get booted out a lot sooner than um, you know than expected in a way. So or he may it's leave. Be a big season for Barcelona. He may leave. Yeah, this is the thing. You never know. But it, it started. It started well, and I think that hopefully Barcelona can put get back on track, get back to playing football, get back to being around Lionel Messi. Um, but it's an advantage Real Madrid after the first results. In an explosive game in La Liga, uh, you know, Antoine Griezmann got sent off. Uh, of course, a red card in that game. Um, frustrating, Nico? For uh, diving. Red card for yeah. diving. Another one. Weird. Uh, yeah. Uh, are we excited by all these red cards for diving? And is it? I think it's it, good. Well, is it? It's partly also the hilarity slash ridiculousness of it. Also, slightly means that players may push back almost quite literally in Cristiano Ronaldo's case um, against this. Yeah, uh, you know, I think it's. I think it's good though because it makes an example out of the players that maybe in the past, specifically in La Liga, seemed untouchable. You know, I think there have been a lot of accounts of maybe some of the players from lower, not lower teams, but. Um, teams with a lot less pedigree talking about, you know, the, the referees specifically protecting the, you know, the, 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 the marketable players, players yeah. and, and Ronaldo and Neymar and Messi and all these guys. And, you know, they have the, the likelihood to be fouled a little bit more because they are tricky players and they're incredibly talented. But at the same time, I think there is a case that there has been unfair treatment or at least unequal treatment of these higher players. And now that we're seeing some, some you know, decisions go against specifically the likes of uh, Cristiano Ronaldo and Antoine Griezmann, two of the biggest, biggest names in the league, you know, you have maybe a power shift in La Liga. Wow. Uh, well, we certainly will be interested to see that. Of course, Atletico Madrid actually came back from behind after losing Antoine Griezmann. Um, so it wasn't all that bad, uh, but then maybe they would have said they could have won 3-2. Um, big week in football this week, guys. Uh, it's been great to chat to you about it. I mean, yeah, it, it's, it's looking like a good season, isn't it, Dave? You excited? Mm. It's shaping up well already. Yeah, shaping up well. Shaping up as well. What I, what I quite like is the predictions that I've made seems to be coming true. So I feel like I'm a wise man at the moment. Wow. And especially fantasy football. I was second in the front three league at the weekend. Is there a front um, three league? <laughs> I'll be damned. Yeah, of course there is. We made it, we made it, we made it last season and is there uh, I renewed it. Yeah, I renewed it. And I'm obviously pretty boss at fantasy football. So I'm up with the boys. Let me just double check who's... Uh, you speak to Nico and I'll find out who is number one right now. I'm, I'm up, the big with, I'm shout up out. with the boys. Um, of course, one thing we can't skip over is uh, Paris Saint-Germain's 6-2 win, Nico, over Toulouse. Uh, although if you will call your team uh, or name your team after a... Verb, Against a, a 10-man PSG coming back. Yeah, uh, and Neymar impressing. It's, he scored twice, but then they romped to victory. So it's almost as if they didn't need his goals. But he did score the I mean, first yeah. I think he's enjoying that that free roll uh, nicely. I think he's like I said in the in the last podcast, he's having a lot of fun with this football, and that's always good to see. So, um, I think as many people have predicted, PSG will uh, go back to 
the norm of walking Liga. And it's really, we're going to judge them maybe fairly or unfairly on their progress in Europe. So we'll see. Yes, certainly so. Uh, there is a lot more to talk about later in the week as there are a lot of uh, stories developing in the football world at the moment. Um, and we do maybe need a little bit of time to um, formulate some opinions on some of them, but we'll bring you those later on Thursday uh, from the front three. Thank you very much for joining us today. Nico, if people want to go find your stuff, where can they read it? They can find me at Nico underscore O'Morales on Twitter and you'll see all my stuff there. Excellent. And of course, Dave, uh, people can also find you at Statman Dave on Twitter and Statman Dave on YouTube. Correct. Um, but we're going to give a shout out to the uh, Kevlar Ravens. Marty McFly, top of the league at the moment with 145 points. That's a top performance. I, in fact, dropped down to eighth position um, in the league. So congratulations to Andy Hare, um, Osbert Moore, Hamish Johnston, Daniel, Yosef and Ryan. Come on, the boys. Quite literally, come on, the boys. Um, good. Well, thanks for joining us today. We'll see you again real soon right here on TF3. Bye. Cool. Bye. Bye. Cool. Bye. Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. 